The local church is at the heart of what God is doing in the world. That means that the people of God in a particular location or community are the means by which God makes his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion, and his very presence known in that community. It's how the people living there would know who God is and what he's like. And when you read through the New Testament, it's churches that launch and plant and establish other churches. This is how God intends for it to be. And this is why we're passionately committed at Chapel Street Church to becoming a family of neighborhood churches. We made the strategic decision not to build one large campus in one location and hope that people drive from farther away, but to reproduce ourselves in communities and in neighborhoods so that the people living there would know the presence of God. And that's why we're so excited to talk about our fourth campus opportunity. God has given us the place in North Aurora and God has preparing a people with Pastor Andrew Griffiths and his team as he's assembling to launch this coming fall. And God has also given us the opportunity to make this happen financially. Recently, a very generous private donor has come and said that they would like to commit to matching 50% of the balance of this project, which is $1.1 million. So if we as a church family can give $550 to $600,000, this person will match that $600,000 and we can launch this campus completely debt-free. What a great opportunity God has given us. What better investment could you think of than to invest in the expansion of God's kingdom by expanding the local church, the way that God makes his presence known in a community? I'm asking everyone who calls Chapel Street Church their home, whether or not you attend the North Aurora campus, would you prayerfully consider what contribution you could make above and beyond your regular giving so that we could launch this campus debt-free this fall? And here's how you can do that. Simply indicate in your check, should you write a check, Neighborhood Church Multiplication. Or if you give online digitally, simply select Neighborhood Church Multiplication as your giving destination. And we'll celebrate together what God does in our midst as we launch the next campus for His glory and for the sake of His gospel. Thank you for being part of the Chapel Street Church family. We do have a great opportunity as, a, as an entire church, and that is, uh, from my perspective, even as we are growing here at our South Street campus, which is the original uh, Chapel Street campus here at this site. Um, actually, there was one much further back um, in downtown Geneva. But as we grow here and people come back to church and new families find us who love traditional worship, uh, even now, Pastor Andrew is gathering a core team of people who will launch uh, this fall, hopefully, a brand new congregation down in North Aurora. So we have a great opportunity, and we want to thank you in advance for whatever gift you're able to make as you consider what God might do uh, through you uh, for that project. Well, way back when I was a high school student, our school librarian uh, was a lady named Priscilla Cipher. Uh, this is a picture of her from my high school yearbook, 1974. Uh, and if I asked you to describe the perfect school librarian, this is the person you would describe. Uh, Miss Cipher was a little less than five feet tall. Uh, she wore teardrop glasses, and she ruled that library with an iron fist. Uh, she insisted on strict observance of silence so as to provide an atmosphere that was conducive for students who really were there to learn and to study, which meant, of course, that my friends and I uh, were almost constantly on the business end of her shushing. Shh! Shh! 
she would track us down where we were in the library because we were there pretty much to goof off at that point in my life. Well, we eventually decided, a few of us, actually two of us, that uh, Mrs. Seifer was overly strict uh, in her use of authority and that our freedoms as students were being limited. And so we rebelled. My best friend Dave and I declared war on the library in general and on Mrs. Seifer in particular. Now, to this day, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very proud of this, uh, and I have no defense other than that we were sophomore boys in high school, but this is what we did. We discovered that all the shelves in our school library were adjustable shelves. They were on tracks, and every single shelf was, was attached with four little metal clips, one on each corner. Furthermore, by process of experimentation, we discovered that you could remove opposite corner clips and that shelf would stay in place, just balanced perfectly until the next person took a book off that shelf and then the whole shelf would collapse. So we spent weeks walking around pretending to look for books, secretly removing two clips from each shelf. I told you I'm not proud of this, but we did this. And then we just would sit down and wait for the inevitable collapse of a bookshelf. And it was this great mystery happening in the library, books falling, but it took Mrs. Cipher about three days to figure out what was going on and who the perpetrators were, probably because we were laughing uncontrollably every time it happened. Well, she uh, hauled us into her office uh, one day uh, and confronted us with our subversive activities. Now, she was a tiny little lady, and we were both nearly six feet tall at that time. We towered over her, but we were terrified of her because she came down with uh, severe justice. She sentenced us to stay after school every day until we replaced every one of those clips, uh, which we did. And then she excommunicated us from the library for life. <laughs> now, fortunately, she eventually suspended our sentence, led us back in the library. And funny thing is, by the end of my senior year, uh, she was one of my favorite teachers at the school. But the passage we're going to look at today shows us uh, a better way to relate to authority. We took a two-week break for Palm Sunday and Easter, and today we return to our series from 1 Peter called Living Hope. I want to begin with uh, kind of refreshing your memories to the verse we're all trying to memorize as we go through this series from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So if you can, we're going to put it on the screen, but I'm going to try not to look, and you can maybe try not to look, and let's see if we can recite this great verse together, what Peter says. He said, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where Peter begins, and then he goes on from there. Now remember, Peter is writing this letter in roughly 62 A.D. or so, and he's writing a letter of encouragement to an instruction to these Jewish background followers of Jesus who are living spread around the Roman Empire. He refers to them, remember, as elect exiles of the dispersion, which simply means that they are chosen by God, uh, that their faith makes them foreigners and aliens in the world, and that they've been scattered like seed uh, as representatives of Jesus all over the world. He reminds them and he reminds us that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then he reminds us that we are called to be holy, to be set apart, to be different in the world. Then he tells us about Jesus being the cornerstone and that we are each living stones being built by God into this new community called the church. And that our collective purpose in the world is to proclaim the excellency of him who called us out of darkness 
into light. That was what we covered the first three weeks or so in the series. Now, we need to keep in mind what Peter has already talked about uh, because we will not understand clearly this week and next week uh, without understanding this context. Okay, so that's crucial. I wanted to bring you up to speed. Now let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, uh, and then I'll read a bit and then we'll comment along the way. Peter continues, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now here he returns to uh, some of his main themes. Uh, Followers of Jesus are sojourners and exiles in the world, and we are called to be holy, that is, set apart and different. In this context, to be holy means to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to refuse to participate in the immorality of the ancient pagan world or the immoralities all around us in our world. Verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I think this verse is the key to the whole passage we're going to look at today. So why does Peter uh, need to say this? Christianity uh, in the first century uh, and these early followers of Jesus were neither accepted nor very well understood by the pagan world. They were different. Uh, They were just strange. They didn't worship the Roman pagan deities, which in the eyes of the pagan world made them look like atheists or blasphemers. Uh, They refused to worship the cult of the emperor, so it was feared they might be revolutionaries. Uh, They gathered in secret meetings that the outsiders didn't understand. They were rumored to eat flesh and drink blood. Uh Uh, They called each other brother and sister, and they had what were called love feasts. And so the rumor was that they might have incestuous relationships. They were regarded as strange and even dangerous because they were different. So Peter reminds them of the purpose of their calling, that they, the world around you, who fears you, who doesn't understand you, who persecutes you, might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the purpose. Now he says to do that, they need to do three things. The first thing he says in this passage is be subject. Be subject. Now I'm pretty sure uh, we would all agree that High school, sophomore boys aren't the only ones who have a tendency to resist authority in our culture. After all, we're Americans. Our whole nation was born out of revolution, resisting and pushing back against and rebelling against the oppressive rule of the King of England, right? We are free. We're free people. We're very proud of our freedom, and we should be. And we often express that freedom through resistance or questioning authority, don't we? I mean... This is our right. How many times have you had someone justify their behavior, even jokingly by saying, hey, it's a free country, right? Hey, that's what we used to say. Hey, it's a free country. Miss Cypher, it's a free country, right? Take driving, for instance. Let's say you're uh, driving and you're approaching an intersection and you're in the turn lane, the left turn lane. And as you get there, the, the, the little arrow is green. But you get to about three cars from the front and that turn arrow turns yellow. And you have a decision to make, right? What are you going to do? The car in front of you goes, it's yellow, and the next car gets out in the intersection because he knows it's going to turn red, and because he's already in the intersection, he gets to go too then. 
Do you get up there right behind him, get out there in the intersection so nobody has ever, so even after it's red, you get a chance to go, right? We all have decisions like that to make. Which do we do? Or let's say you're riding in an airplane. This is the one that gets me. You're in, air, you're in an airplane and you, you, uh, you tip your seat back after takeoff, you know, that little three inches the seat moves like beep, that far, and you tip it back just so you can get more comfortable, and eventually you do settle in and get comfortable, you might even fall asleep. And then just as you're just getting really comfortable, they make that announcement, please return your seats to an upright position. And I just don't like that. Because, like, it's only got a, the plane's got 30 more minutes to go before it lands. And then my, that little three inches helps it land better? I don't understand. I think it just saves them work of putting it up after we all get off, right? So after the, after the I almost said stewardess, after the flight attendant walks by, then I put it back again because, because I can. It's a free country, Right? Or tax time. Uh, how many of you are just filled with gratitude and joy? <laughs> or you're told to be quiet in the library. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, if you're paying attention at all this morning, right there you should be going, oh, 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 time out, hold on. Did I hear that right? Did Peter just say, be subject to every human institution? I mean, I get love the brotherhood. That's those of us inside the church. I get fear God, but did he just say be subject to the emperor? To Nero? The, that guy? The guy who has already likely executed the Apostle Paul and who will execute the Apostle Peter? That guy? To governors? Does he know our governor? Right? That this is the will of God? This is Peter. He once drew a sword in the Garden of Eden and chopped off the ear of, of one of the high priest's servants. This is Peter who knew firsthand the violence and the evil and the power of Rome. What is he saying? What does he mean? On the one hand, he's repeating what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 13 when Paul wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. But on the other hand, uh, the book of Acts tells us in chapter 5 that when Peter and some of the other, uh, others of the apostles are arrested and thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, they are delivered by an angel of God, and they go right back to preaching the gospel. They're hauled in again, and when they're confronted, they say, we're not going to stop because we must, in verse 29, Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, we're going to disobey. So which is it? Do we obey the government or do we obey God? And the answer, I think, Peter's telling us is both. In this text, I believe Peter is assuming that followers of Jesus will obey God rather than men. That when it comes right down to it, we obey our Heavenly Father and His law. And he's assuming that if the emperor of Rome commanded them to do something they knew to be contrary to the law of God, they would refuse. For example... Uh, if the emperor decreed that all, for example, all firstborn daughters are to be left uh, exposed to die. Now, we know that in, the ancient, in ancient Rome, children were left exposed. But let's say they decreed that all firstborn daughters should be left outside to die. The early believers would have refused to do that. 
they would have cared for them and they would have uh, been willing to go to prison as the consequence of that. They would have disobeyed. Just as today, if our government today passed a law, for example, making it illegal to run a food pantry to care for the needy, we would disobey that and we'd be willing to go to jail for that. Or if they decreed that, for example, uh, we, uh, we, were, we could not preach the gospel publicly, I would hope we would disobey that and we'd be willing to go to jail for that. But here Peter's talking about something else. He's teaching them how, in general, God wants them to relate to human authority. And to understand, we need to know something of the cultural context of that time. Uh, These early believers were a tiny, tiny minority in the Roman Empire. Their very existence was under almost constant threat. They had no political power, no social standing. The Roman Empire was not a democracy. We don't know what it's like to live in a totalitarian state. And rebellion in that uh, time was routinely crushed with swift and brutal violence. Some of you know the story of um, Spartacus in 73 B.C. or so. A former gladiator named Spartacus led a revolt of sorts against Rome. Uh, He led an army of fellow slaves and several dramatic victories. But that revolt was eventually crushed. Spartacus killed and some 6,000 of his followers crucified at one time. You see, revolt or rebellion or protest against the government was not an option in the first century Roman Empire. Now, this this instruction to be subject, therefore, has three main purposes. First, to demonstrate to the authorities and to local community that Christians were not evildoers and that the church was not a political threat. Secondly, this instruction served to answer any questions these early believers might have had about how they were to relate to the governing authorities. I mean, the government was pagan, uh, the the, the leaders worshipped idols, uh, taxes were used for unjust wars and to build temples to false gods, Christians were being persecuted, so should they pay taxes or not? Should they revolt? Should they actively rebel? Peter says, be subject to. Be subject to. Be good citizens. Actually echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 22 when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In fact, this phrase, be subject, is one word in the ancient Greek. It means to place yourself under the authority of another. It means to willfully submit to another. And ooh, that rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? If we're honest. I mean, we look around at our country today. Over the last year or so, what we've seen is that no one wants to submit to anyone about anything, right? Isn't that what we're seeing? Isn't that what our culture is all about right now? Resist, protest, demonstrate. But notice the why here. Peter's very clear. Why are we to be subject? He says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. He's reminding us that by submitting to human authority, we are submitting to the Lord himself. And thirdly, uh, this instruction allowed the Christians and the church to have an influence, a witness in the world. In verse 15, it says, this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That by doing good, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, we don't live in a Roman Empire. We don't live in a totalitarian state. I think if Peter were writing to us today to people living in a democracy in North America. He might encourage us to be involved in government in a way that wasn't possible in the first century. He might encourage us to run for office, to use our vote for influence, but always with the same goal. 
And that is, by doing good, others would come to glorify the God that we worship and serve. But even so, the truth is, there are many people, and this number is growing, I believe, in our culture, uh, who see Christianity, who see the church as kind of the enemy, right? Much of the world around us uh, believe that we teach hopelessly outdated and out-of-touch things about God, about truth, about morality, about marriage and family. And there are people right here in our own backyard who think that about us. But when we do what is good, when we as representatives of Christ treat all people, those like us and those not like us, those who believe what we believe, those who do not believe what we believe, if we treat all people as created in the image of God, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, when we feed the hungry, when we care for the sick, when we show compassion to the refugee, those who look on the church or Christianity with suspicion or even disdain have no choice but to say, those people do good things. And that's powerful. Years ago, a friend of mine here in church, a uh, long time ago now, told me she was at a restaurant, a local restaurant, and overheard a conversation in the booth behind her at the restaurant. And it turned to church. And one lady said to her friend, you know, we, uh, we are looking for a new church. And the other lady goes, well, you should go to Chapel Street Church. We were called First Baptist Church of Geneva back then. You should go to that church. And the lady said, well, do you go there? She goes, no, I don't go to church anywhere. But if I did, I would go to that church. And I love that story because somewhere, somehow, she heard some things about us that sounded good to her. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. A lot of people have an issue with the church. A lot of people have an issue with what we believe, but no one has an issue with compassion, with doing good. And this is crucial to understanding what Peter is saying. He's saying, he's saying in Christ, we are free. We are free. That is, we're free from the power of sin and death. We're free from the fear of human institutions and authorities. But we're not called to use our freedom for ourselves. This is key. We are called to use our freedom to subject ourselves, for this is God's will. And when it comes to government and politics and laws and culture, our job description never changes. And Peter gives it in four phrases. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, and love your neighbor as yourselves. That's our job. Be subject. Secondly, Peter here is saying, be gracious. Be gracious. When my brother Joe and I were growing up, we both uh, loved sports, and we played them all. We eventually came to, love, came to love basketball the most, and that's where we put all our time and energy. When my brother was a sophomore in high school, I was already in college, <clears throat> um, he, our family had moved, so he went to a new school. So he went out for the basketball team, and it was really important for him to do well and make the team because he's a brand new guy at school, so he sort of wanted to prove himself. But his coach at that level was this guy um, who saw the whistle as a weapon and who saw his authority as absolute. And one day, uh, the coach got upset with the team because they were of their bad passing or something. So he made them practice a whole practice without dribbling or shooting, just passing. And if you ever grew up playing the game, you know that sometimes coaches do this sort of thing. So they're just, they're just passing. Nobody's shooting, they're just passing. 
And eventually, as they were playing, my brother, uh, who was really good at stealing the ball, he stole the ball out in front of everybody, so he had a breakaway, a breakaway layup. And in his mind, he didn't think the coach could possibly be including a breakaway layup all by yourself as part of don't shoot the ball. So he went in and he took the layup. And the coach blew the whistle and immediately started screaming at him for violating his command, which was don't shoot the ball. And then he not only kicked my brother out of practice that day, he kicked him off the team. He said, take your stuff and go home. You're done. Right in the middle of practice. My brother was dumbfounded, devastated. Like, what? You're, for that? So my brother took his stuff, got in his car, drove home. My dad was at home and knew that something was wrong because my brother was home early from practice. So he asked him what happened. And my brother told him what happened. And what do you think my dad did? Did he jump in his car, drive to the gym, and give that coach a piece of his mind? No, he didn't do that. Did he write a letter to the school board and try to get that guy fired? That would have crossed my mind, but he didn't do that either. He told my brother, get back in your car, go back to school, wait till practice is over, and then go to your coach, apologize to him for disobeying his orders, and ask what you can do to get reinstated on the team. So my brother did that. The coach told him, okay, to get back on the team, you have to run 1,000 laps around the gym. 1,000 laps. It took him a whole week. It was like 25 miles worth. A whole week, but he submitted himself to an unreasonable and unjust coach and ran those 1,000 laps and got back on the team. He subjected himself to authority. A little sidelight is our family moved again, so he went to a different school the next year, and two years after that, the team he was on won the state championship in Florida. So he got the last laugh in the end. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect. I'll talk about servants and masters in just a moment. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, if you're paying attention, you should be going, whoa, whoa, hold on, time out, I got another question. Did Peter just say, servants, be subject to your masters even when they are unjust? Did he really just say, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God? Shouldn't he be saying something like this? Uh, When you're treated unfairly, organize a protest. When you're treated unfairly, organize a strike. Go on Facebook, express your outrage. Isn't that the American thing to do now? Now, just a word about servants and masters, or as some translations say, slaves and masters. This is not what we think of when we think of servitude or slavery. Uh, Historians estimate that at that time in the Roman Empire, up to a third or a quarter of all people were some sort of servants in that society. Uh, They were just, the best way for us to think about it is not as slaves so much, but as sort of the lower class of Roman society. Lower income workers, household employees, what we might call blue collar workers, that sort of thing. These people had no choice in their employment. They had no power or voice or opportunity to change their lot. So Peter is writing to them to encourage them, to encourage those living in difficult or unjust circumstances. And he tells them, be subject, that same word again, to your masters. Be good employees. Respect authority. And be gracious, he says. Now, this is an interesting word. If you look it up in the ancient Greek, the word is charis. It's the word we use for grace. 
It means undeserved gifts of kindness. It's what God offers us in Christ, a gift that's undeserved and unmerited, but it's his favor. It means to willfully extend favor to another whether or not they deserve it. Years ago, I heard uh, a pastor named Lee Strobel speak at a conference. At the time, he was a pastor at Willow Creek Community Church in Barrington. Since, he's become a best-selling author. He's written The Case for Christ and many other books. But at this conference, he told a story from a time in his life from, in, from before he was a Christian. And he was an avowed atheist, hard-driving newspaper reporter in Chicago. He had a younger reporter working underneath him in the company who was known to be a Christian. And Lee Strobel at that time thought this was ridiculous, and he despised this young man, even though he didn't really know him. He just thought that faith in God was, uh, was foolish. And so he routinely made fun of this young man in public, in, in public meetings, in gatherings of staff. He ridiculed him, made fun of him, was rude to him, gave him the worst assignments he could give him, just went out of his way to make this young guy's life miserable on the job. But he says that when his wife became pregnant with their first child, and developed serious complications so that her life and the life of the unborn baby were at risk. The only person in the entire organization who reached out to him in care was that young man who called him one day and said, Mr. Strobel, this is so-and-so. I just want you to know that my wife and I are praying for your wife and your unborn baby. What Strobel says is that young guy was the first person he met and knew to introduce him to the God he didn't believe in. That's what Peter means by be gracious. So here's what he's saying. You've been born again to a living hope. You are strangers and exiles in the world. You are called to be holy, to be different, set apart, and in Christ you are free. Even when you are servants, even when you are treated unfairly, here's what you do. Be gracious. Offer grace as a gift, even to a lousy boss. That's what he says. Be gracious. The third thing he says in this passage is be encouraged. Be encouraged. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For when you were straying like sheep, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what does a servant of God look like? What does being holy, set apart, look like in the world? Peter says it looks a lot like Jesus. He says, Jesus is our example to follow. He did not sin, yet was treated with great injustice and hatred. When reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten. He trusted himself to God. Jesus becomes our model for how we live in the world. But then he says, Jesus is also the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. As our shepherd, he cares for us. He knows us, he loves us, he protects us, he bore our sins, he brings us back when we stray, and then he's the overseer. An overseer is a word of authority. That is, he has the authority over our souls, and we submit to his will. 
Here's the basic question Peter is asking. How are you using your freedom in Christ? How did Jesus, how does the gospel, how does the church change the world? Now, these are very contemporary questions, I think. Many of us are concerned about the direction of our nation, right? We're concerned about the future. How do we change things? Uh, How do we have an influence? Well, how did these early believers change the world? How did Christianity, the church, go from a tiny, persecuted minority that should never have survived the first century, should never have survived the purges of the Roman Empire? How did they go from that to a force that changed the world and still does? I took this photo last October when one of my sons and I made a trip to Arches National Park in Utah. Anybody been there? Arches National Park in Utah? Incredible place. You can see him. My son is at the bottom of that photo. As you can see the the scope of what we're looking at. Arches Park is named after the hundreds of these great stone archways that are all over the park. Some are 100 feet tall. Some are 50 to 100 yards wide. Just spectacular. And you see arch after arch as you hike through the park. They were once huge mountains, but they're not anymore. How did all that happen? How were they made? Was it with blasts of dynamite? Mm -mm. Armies of workers with pickaxes and shovels? Nope. Wind and water and time. In other words, by the power of God. That's it. Not with, uh, how, and how did Christianity survive the Roman Empire? Not just survive, but overcome the Roman Empire. Not with power, not with political clout, not by revolution, at least not revolution driven by swords and weapons, but with truth and love and goodness and a willingness to suffer if necessary. How do we, as followers of Jesus today, 2021, influence our world? Same way. Same way. That's what Peter's teaching us. Would you bow with me as I pray? Lord God, we thank you today for your word, for this ancient letter written to believers just like us, who are struggling to know how to live as sojourners and aliens in this world. Remind us again by your word that the power you have given us, the power of a living hope, the power to do what is good, the power to love our neighbors, is greater than any military or political power that's ever existed. Remind us that we belong to you, and we are subject to you, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.